So the Trinity as practical theology is how we start off. The Trinity as practical theology. Uh, we know that uh, when we study systematics, when we study doctrine, at the foundation of what we study, we have to know who God is. And God is revealed, has revealed himself as Trinity, as God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that is at the foundation of, of all of our understanding of who God is and all of our theology. And that was what Owen believed. He believed that the doctrine of the Trinity was foundational for all of his theology and all of his teaching. He believed that the Father is the only fountain of the Godhead, that the Son is begotten of his Father from eternity, and that the Spirit is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. And so we um, understand from our confessions some uh, succinct teaching on what we believe about the Trinity. God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Owen summarizes that with a quote where he says that God is one, that this one God is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that the Father is the Father of the Son, and the Son the Son of the Father and the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of the Father and the Son, and that in respect of this, their mutual relations, they are distinct from each other. So when we talk about the Trinity, we can all often get tongue-tied and get our minds wrapped up trying to grasp what does it mean for God to be one God in three persons. Well, we confess what the scriptures say, though we may not fully understand completely logically how that actually works. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. And that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not 99% one and 1% the other. There's not a mixture, but he is fully God and man. And that is what Owen uh, believed in his theology, an uh, orthodox understanding of the Trinity that was the foundation of all his theology. So he also believed that the doctrine of the Trinity was foundational for worship. Not just theology, but also for worship. Uh, Carl Truman says of, of reading Owen that it's essentially ecclesiastical and practical in purpose. It is theology done within the church for the benefit of the church. So Carl Truman, in his studies on Owen and his writing, walks away saying that Owen's understanding of the Trinity was extremely ecclesiastical and practical, that it was done within the church and for the church, for the benefit of the church, that its purpose at the end of the day is to influence our worship. Our understanding of the Trinity influences how we worship. And Ferguson writes of Owen's theology, the Christian life is nothing less than fellowship with God the Trinity, leading to the full assurance of faith. And so there is a deep connection between our theology and our worship, is there not? That the Trinity informs how we worship, our understanding of who God is. And then lastly here, the doctrine of the Trinity was foundational for Owen's communion. So we're, we're, we're starting off this chapter seeing what is important to Owen and his theology, his understanding of the Trinity, and that is why it's so important for his understanding of communion, because he saw it as a foundation for, for all of doctrine. So for Owen, communion or fellowship with God meant the mutual exchange of spiritual benefits between God and his people based on the bond between them in union with Christ. So that's a good summary statement for you to see there of what Owen means when he talks about communion that he's talking about a mutual exchange of spiritual benefits that we have, and that only happens in union with Christ through his mediation. 
So when we talk about communion or fellowship with God, according to Owen, that's what he means. That's what he means. So Owen says, our communion then with God consists in his communication of himself to us with our returnal unto him of that which he requires and accepts, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. So once again, you see that he connects this communion vitally to union with Christ. That our union with Christ is where this communion is able to flow forth from. Uh, He distinguishes between union with Christ and communion with Christ. Two different things, right? So when he often talks about it, he's taking both, when he's talking about communion with God, he's taking both union with Christ and communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and kind of putting them into one basket, covering the whole thing with that term, communion with, with God. So union with Christ is an unchangeable relationship of salvation. So we're united to faith by faith in Christ, and it's an unchangeable relationship of our salvation. If you turn your page, what he means by communion with God is the variable experience of that relationship. So you have this union, and then you have a variable relationship with Christ coming out of that union. And that is what Owen means when he talks about the two things, union and communion. And often when he's talking about communion with God, you have to remember that's what he means. He's kind of throwing both into the same, into the same basket. The, the understanding is you're united with Christ, and that is separate from the variable experience that you have in communion with God. So Owen embraced the theme that St. Augustine had in his writings. This idea that we have communion with the triune God and we enjoy him as, as a triune God, that we enjoy and delight in the Trinity and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Owen believed in what's called the classical doctrine of appropriations. I don't know how familiar you are with that, appropriations. He believed that there was a distinct communion with each divine person. So he believed that we have distinct communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he, founded, he found biblical support for that, you see there in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, 1 John, Revelation, where he sees that there are certain things which he'll, as we, as we get into it, he sees that we commune with God the Father primarily in his love, that we commune with Christ primarily in his grace, and the Spirit primarily in his comfort. And we'll get into more of what he meant by that, because there are some errors that he wanted to be careful to guard against. But this is what Owen clarifies as a doctrine that does not mean exclusive communion with any one person, okay? So he wants to guard and make sure we realize that there's not exclusive communion that you have with just the Father or just the Son or just the Spirit, but that always you're communing with God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says, but communion primarily appropriated by that person according to his distinct property and role. So he's using language here to try to explain what he means, that there's not uh, a worship of just the Father or a worship of just the Son, but we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. Um, And yet, he wants to say that we do have distinct communion with each divine person, okay? So that's what he's getting at. J.A. Packer summarizes some of this, saying, communion with God is a relationship in which Christians receive love from and respond in love to all three persons of the Trinity. So Packer wants to emphasize the fact that it's not just one person, it's all three persons. That we receive love from and respond in love to all three persons of the Trinity. 
And so Owen developed a treatise called Communion with God, which is what this is all based off of. He, he wrote that in 1657 while he was vice chancellor at Oxford. So I'm sure he had a very busy schedule as chancellor, vice chancellor of Oxford while he was writing this uh, communion with God. So before we move on, just uh, a question for us to consider. Uh, what is the relationship, do you think, that we should see between theology and worship? What do you think that should look like um, practically for us today? Your theology should instruct how you worship. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so that what we study and believe should be causing us to worship, is that what you're saying? It should bring forth worship. Yeah, yeah. Josh? Yeah, yeah. Good. Any other thoughts? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and theology uh, is the, the study of God, and it's, you know, if we study God and we find that we believe God is A, B, or C then our outflow of how we worship him would be outflow of that, yeah. So if I believe that uh, God is a tree and he's in the forest, and I must find him and pick his fruit from that tree and eat it in order to be saved, then my worship is going to be according to that uh, belief, right? But if I believe that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and being wisdom, power, judgment, justice, goodness, and truth, that he's revealed himself in God the Son and sent his Son into the world, that all that theology, all that doctrine informs how I worship, right? What the scriptures say. So it is, it's obviously extremely important. They're connected whether we want them to be or not. They are. Um, so what place does experience, do you think, have in the life of the believer? What place do you have, think that experience has? Because I think that's a little bit of what Owen's diving into here, some of the experience of the Christian in communion. Yeah, exactly. It's not just your experiences thus and such, therefore your belief should follow that, but your experience should be informed by what does scripture say. Is that kind of where you're going? Yeah. So yeah. If we
Yeah, yeah. And the Psalms do hit on some of that, right? That David remembers God's faithfulness in the past, and that informs his trust and faith for the future. Yeah. You just, I think that obviously what, what we're probably feeling is that tension of you don't want to rely on experience or let that inform you too much, but it's also not a bad thing. Like, there is a true experience of the triune God. Um, yeah. Thought. Yeah, so theology should inform the worship, not worship inform the theology. Okay. Yeah, John. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think as some of us are reading uh, Carl Truman's uh, book on issues going on now, uh, The Strange New World, 
I mean, he, I think he hits on that for sure, that culture and people right now, our God is our experience. And what we psychologically feel is more true than what we physiologically are. And that's how you get the situation where we are with the trans you know, movement and the um, issues that we see, see going on. It's, you know, it's not what biologically is true or physically true that matters, but what you psychologically feel and think and experience that is trumping that truth. And that, that's, a, that's a big problem, right? It's a really big problem. Um, so anyway, uh, let's move on. So he writes this uh, treatise, Communion with God, and we, we get into a section to understand a little bit of the historical context here. So he's a Puritan, and he's writing in the 1600s. Um, and there were a lot of important Puritans who were emphasizing the theme of communion. Um, it was an important subject to them. Uh, Thomas Goodwin wrote The Object and Acts of Justifying Faith, where he wrote about the connection between assurance of faith and communion with the Trinity. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, as some of you have probably read and known as an influential Puritan, Owen's uh, treatise was popular among Dutch Reformed Christians and translated to Dutch in 1717. Um, Daniel Burgess said of the treatise, "The highest angels' food of the highest of angels' food is here set before thee." This book he considers to be the highest of angels' food that Owen wrote. There was some criticism. Uh, Owen received a little bit of criticism after he published this. William Sherlock, it said, gave a clumsy attack on the work, not a very good attack. I don't know what exactly he meant by that, but it wasn't a very good attack, but an attack nonetheless. And Owen's response was practical and designed. Well, he says that he was surprised by it, and he says that his work was supposed to be practical and designed for popular edification without a direct engagement into things controversial. So Owen was kind of surprised that anyone had a lot of backlash against his book. Um, there's a comment from Andrew Thompson that he thought the work went beyond scripture. Um, but others say that his study and his writing on communion was all very grounded in scripture. Um, so you have to study and look at it yourself. Uh, do you think this is scriptural or not? Uh, Andrew Thompson did not think so. Uh, as a defense for Owen's treatise, you can turn the page. Uh, Ferguson says that both the union with Christ, which gives the Christian his status before God, and the communion with God, which is the fruit of that status, are thus subsumed under the notion of communion. And this is the sense in which Owen generally employs the expression. So Ferguson wants to give clarity to how Owen generally employs this expression of communion with the Trinity. And we've talked about that already a little bit. He clarifies that communion must be in and through Christ, for there is no communion between God and man otherwise. It is impossible to have communion with the Trinity apart from the mediation of Christ the Son. Owen taught that there were distinct roles or economies of the Trinity. He said that the Father is the initiator who chooses whom he will save and how. The Son is the Word of God who images the Father's nature and does his will as mediator to redeem sinners. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as their executive conveying to God's elect their sure salvation. So he, he shows here what he believes to be the different roles or economies of each person of the Trinity and his thinking. So Owen does not divide God's works and distribute them among three persons, since the external works of the Trinity are undivided, but rather recognizes that in every work of God, all three persons cooperate in distinct ways. 
So here, uh, Owen's wanting to kind of say that this is not individual works, but it's all done together. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in each work are working together and not separately. All three persons cooperate, yet in distinct ways, is what he's saying. Um, any thoughts on that before we move on and what Owen is kind of thinking? Yeah, yeah, that is helpful. It is very helpful. Any other thoughts? Owen goes on now to uh, talk about the, the, the way that he thinks that we hold communion, though we do not separately, he says, commune with any one person of the Trinity exclusively, but there are ways in which we distinctly have appropriations uh, of each one to commune with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through each in specific ways. And he says that with the Father, the communion is in love. And he uses 2 Corinthians 13, 14 as his kind of verse to springboard for all these. And that verse says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And so you see from this verse, he's going to expound on each one that it's the love of God, emphasized in communion with the Father, the grace of Christ, emphasized in communion with Christ, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. He's going to emphasize the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So first, the communion with the Father in love. He says that saints have particular communion with the Father in his love. He bases that off 1 John, 2 Corinthians, uh, John 16, Romans 5. You can look those up. Um, he says that the Father's love is the fountain from which all sweetness and grace flow. So this idea that, that the Father is the originator uh, of love, and that is where it flows down through the Son and through the Spirit. Um, unlike human love, it is free, eternal, unchangeable, and distinguishing. So this love of the Father must be understood very distinctly from our understanding of human love. The divine love originates in the Father, and Christ's mediating work is the outworking of God's prior love. So there's a lot going on in these phrases. You kind of have to let them sit a minute, meditate on them. What, what is he saying here? Divine love originates in the Father, and Christ's mediating work is the outworking of God's love. So because of the Father's love for us, he sent the Son, right? And his mediatorship brings us into communion with God, the Father, and the Son. 
Um, he says that receiving the Father's love through Christ, the believer returns the Father's love through rest, delight, reverence, and obedience. So you see here again, in his idea of communion, there's a giving and receiving, a giving and receiving of benefits um, in this relationship. That the believer returns the Father's love by resting, delighting, reverencing, and obeying. Uh, that's how it looks for the Christian, for the believer, to return God's love. There's a living relationship of mutual exchange, is the language that Owen uses for communion. A living relationship between the believer and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of mutual exchange, of benefits and blessing. When encountering obstacles in loving God, he gives us three things. He says, remember that the Father's love is antecedent to the believer's love. So the Father's love is before ours. We love because he first loved us. Remember that verse? We love because he first loved us. Meditate on the eternal quality and unchangeable nature of that love, he says. And then remember that the cross is the sign and seal of God's love. So Owen is, is getting practical here. What do we do when encountering obstacles in loving God? He says to, to meditate and think on these things. What do we scripturally believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done and who they are? Remember that the cross is a sign and seal of God's love. So coming out of this, why do you think it is practically important that God's love is free and eternal, that we understand it to be different than human love? Why is it important to understand that God's love, the Father's love, is free and eternal? Okay, you can't earn it. Very, very good point. Right. What else? You can't earn it. You can't lose it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We cannot lose that love that has been given and purchased. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to find. It's hard to find any good example of absolute unconditional love and humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
yeah, why is it practically important that God's love is free and eternal? Why, why you know, practically, why is that important was the question. Um, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think the reason it's important is because we would absolutely lose our salvation if we could. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, one of the things I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the directions I wanted to go, is that understanding that freedom of the love that we don't owe, or he doesn't owe us anything, um, and that he doesn't need our love is very important. Um, he's not like humans. Humans, most of our love uh, is a lot of need love, um, and it's conditional, and God is just free from all of that, that from eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been uh, filled with love and have no need for anything outside themselves and yet they have outpoured the Holy Spirit uh, through the Holy Spirit has outpoured that love into us and shared with us love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we may partake right um, of all that they have in love in the Trinity um, and that's practically very helpful for us because you'll live in this in this you know, thought of relating to God as if God's love is like our love, that it's um, needy, or that God, you know, God needs us to love him, and he doesn't, that God is completely happy and satisfied without us, because we look at our human relationships, and that's a difficulty that, you know, we, we're not going to be able to get past it to a degree, all of our relationships and love is never completely free, right, it's never completely free in the way that God's is. Um, and one other thing I'll point out real quick is that Christ, and this is where Owen is going to our understanding of the Trinity, Christ didn't win over 
the love of the Father so that the Father could love us. But it's because of the Father's love that he sends the Son to mediate that we might know him. And that is practically important because I think, you know, it's easy to think that, you know, we come to Jesus and we hide because behind his back is an angry God. That behind Jesus' back is an angry Father who only loves us, you know, as long as Jesus covers us. Well, yes, in order to be, know the Father and to be saved, Christ had to take the wrath of God, right? He had to take that penalty for sin, but it's because of the Father's love that the Son is sent. And so God does not um, only love us afterwards, but he loved us before. It was not after, but before, and it's because of that love that the Son is sent to redeem. And that has a lot of practical implications as well. Um, so we've talked about the communion with the Father in love, and next he moves on to communion with the Son in grace. So he says that the believer receives grace by receiving Christ. In John 1.16 it says, Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. And that he, as we've talked about, um, it's important that Jesus is the mediator of the covenant, of the covenant of grace. That out of, out of this covenant, Jesus is the mediator. Um, and then he breaks it down, our communion with Christ, into personal grace and uh, purchase grace, kind of the difference between the, the person of Christ and the work of Christ and how we commune with the, the person of Christ and with the work of Christ. And this will get us into uh, some interesting territory, but he uh, means by this the spiritual beauty of Christ as our grace-filled mediator who satisfies all the wants of men. So Owen sees that there is a spiritual sight that we have that finds Christ to be beautiful, that we find him beautiful. And we, uh, what is it? Uh, is there a hand up? Did I miss somebody? Okay, sorry. <laughs> he was pointing. Um, spiritual beauty of Christ as our graceful meter who satisfies all our wants. And so we have spiritual needs and wants that Christ, he sees as the one who, who fulfills that in his grace. He emphasizes the Lord's enjoyment of his people, not only our enjoyment of God, but that God enjoys his people and wants fellowship with his people and communion with his people. Um, that idea of communion being a give, receiving, and taking relationship. Uh, Kay says that Owen emphasizes that the forensic and covenantal actions of Christ are in the service of personal face-to-face -face dealing between two lovers, a groom and his bride. And Owen explains that the conjugal relationship between Christ and his people um, is using the poetry of Song of Solomon. So this, you know, not everyone would agree with this, but he sees the Song of Solomon as being an example of the, the relationship between Christ and his church. He says, the more general persuasion of learned men is that the whole is one holy declaration of the mystically spiritual communion that is between the great bridegroom and his spouse, the Lord Christ and his church. Now, he's careful to point out in the book that Owen does not base his Christology or experimental aspects on the book of the Song of Solomon, but sees it as poetry that illustrates the believer's experience of communion with Christ. Um, not basing his Christology on it, but sees it as illustra Ill illustrative of communion with Christ. And Ferguson, Ferguson says he does not subjectivize Christ to the point of mysticism, but rather tries to describe the subjective experience of the objective Christ. 
So our subjective experience of an objective Christ, to whom the rest of Scripture bears witness. Um, so that's the personal grace, and then there's the purchase grace, meaning all that righteousness and grace which Christ hath procured. Justification and sanctification and adoption, all the work of Christ that we partake in by union with him. And we commune with him in those things. And I love the way he puts it here. He says, there is almost nothing that Christ has done, which is a spring of grace whereof we speak, but we are said to do it with him. Whether suffering, crucifixion, dying, being made alive, rising, or sitting in heavenly places. So one says, there's almost nothing that Christ has done that the scriptures do not say that we, by union with him, have not done and do not participate and partake in uh, by faith. So, uh, I don't know if we have time to get into this question. You can talk about this on your own. Do you think that the use of the Song of Solomon to illustrate the experience of communion with Christ is a fair thing to do? I know we have differing opinions. <laughs> so, you can think about that and talk about it. Uh, lastly, communion with the Spirit and comfort. Owen says that the foundation of all our communion with the Holy Ghost consists in his mission or sending to be our comforter, paraclete, by Jesus Christ. And he identifies nine different ways. Uh, I think that you would be familiar with, with these. That the Spirit communes with the believer by helping us to remember the words of Christ and to understand them. The Spirit glorifies Christ and pours out the love of God in our hearts. He witnesses that we are children of God. He seals our faith. He assures our salvation. He anoints us. He sheds the love of God abroad in our heart and becomes to us the Spirit of supplication. And all of these he identifies as ways that the Spirit uh, is comforting the believer and applying to us all those things that the Father and the Son have sent to us through the Spirit. Owen says, Above all, the Holy Ghost acquaints us with and communicates unto us the love of the Father and the grace of the Son. That is the work of the Spirit. That the love of the Father and the grace of the Son are communicated to us through the Spirit. So in, in conclusion, uh, he talks about the sweetness of a personal relationship with the Trinity. So what we've been talking about is kind of that experience of we have theology about the Trinity and how does the Christian experience God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's been emphasizing the different ways he biblically thinks that that is. Um, and Owen writes, What am I the better if I can dispute that Christ is God, but have no sense or sweetness in my heart from, whence, from hence that he is a God in covenant with my soul? And so he sees here, you know, uh, what good is it if you have an academic understanding of God if you don't have a sense of sweetness and love towards him uh, in your soul? So the last question for us is, why is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity crucial for Christian experience? And I think we've hit on this already a little bit, but any other thoughts? Why is it cru crucial for our experience, the doctrine of the Trinity? The true God, yeah. Yeah. And as you study the scriptures and come to know this triune God and his work of redemption, uh, he turns out to be much better than any of us could have ever imagined or would naturally think, right? 
that the love that we find in the Father, the grace in the Son, and the comfort of the Spirit are far beyond what humans could imagine. Um, he points out that obviously it regulates our worship. It's, it's crucial because the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, regulates our worship. As we've said, it's evangelical since we cannot draw near to the Father except through the Son by the Spirit. And that's what he means by evangelical. And it makes spirituality relational and guards it from becoming mystical experience of an impersonal or pantheistic deity. So our understanding of the Trinity guards us from an impersonal or pantheistic deity is what he says. Yeah. It's a good question that I think that different people say different things. Um, you can correct me, but I, I, it is my understanding that we can pray, obviously, through the Father, through the Son, to the Father, by the Spirit, and that's how we understand it. And we can pray to Christ, who is God. And we can pray to the Father, who is God. Um, I would say yes. Is there any... I'm looking around at my elders... I would say yes, yeah. Yeah, they, we, the Holy Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God, and we pray, we can pray to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, come, uh, help me, you know, Jesus and the Father, and we trust that we're understanding that in a Trinitarian way, that they don't do anything separately apart from one another. Yeah, and that's, that's been my understanding, and I want to, because the language can be so tricky talking about the Trinity. You want to be careful how you're saying things, but thankfully God is very gracious that we're not saved by how much we understand, but by the objective work of Christ and our faith in that. Um, so let's go ahead and close, because we are out of time, and I'll pray for you.